This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on celiac disease. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Celiac disease is a common disorder affecting 1% of the population. It is commonly underdiagnosed, and this can result in short-term and long-term complications, everything from malabsorption to increased risk of cancer. To tell us about the disorder, we have on the line Dr. Matthew Curian. Matthew is Senior Clinical Lecturer and Honorary Consultant Gastroenterologist at University of Sheffield Medical School. And Matthew is also peer reviewer of our BMJ Best Practice topic on celiac disease. So Matthew, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you, what exactly is celiac disease? So as you described, this is a common disorder of the digestive system, which affects one in a hundred people. Very simply, it is a um, disorder which relates to glutens, which are proteins found in wheat, barley, and rye. When people with celiac disease consume gluten, it causes an immune reaction, which damages the lining of the small intestine. As you described, that can cause complications leading to nutrient deficiencies, the risk of osteoporosis, and very rarely cancers of the digestive system. So it's a common disorder, which is frequently unrecognized. Great, thank you. And can you tell us about any recent advances in diagnosis, if if there are any? Sure. So there have been advances in how we detect celiac disease with regards to the blood tests, the blood tests, which we call serological tests, have advanced with regards to how accurate they are in detecting celiac disease. We've also seen advances in our endoscopy techniques and how we sample the small bowel and detection in that way. But the truth be told, there are a number of challenges with regards to diagnosis. Although we recognize that one in a hundred people with celiac, have celiac disease, we are still only detecting one in every four people with this condition. So although there have been advances, there are significant concerns that we are not detecting the people who have celiac disease. Okay, thank you. And, and tell us about the, the blood tests and blood tests that have become available that, that weren't available, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Sure. Often the first line tests for celiac disease used to be glidens that we used to check on blood tests. And we found they were not as accurate as some of the newer tests, which include tissue transglutaminase, endomyocell antibodies. And now more recently, we're using another type of test called deamidated gliadin peptides. Um, and some of these are being used in point of care tests, finger prick uh, tests that have been done at the bedside. The newer ones have yet to be fully validated. Um, so currently what is recommended in guidelines, and, and I'm quoting sort of the NICE guidelines, is that in testing for people with celiac disease, we should be checking their tissue transglutaminase as their first line test, alongside checking the immunoglobulins in these patients. And the reason for specifically doing both tests concurrently is that 2% of people with celiac disease have a deficiency of IgA. So the routine tissue transglutaminase test is an IgA test. So if you are IgA deficient, you may have a false negative result. So the first line test just emphasizes TTG alongside immunoglobulins. Excellent. Thank you. That's really, really clear. And does everybody still need a, a small bowel biopsy to confirm the diagnosis if it's suspected? 
So this is a, a, a controversial area. At the moment, for adult practice, the answer is yes. So the blood tests are not 100% accurate. So a lot of the people will get detected in primary care. The advice is if they get a blood test that is positive, they have to remain on their diet and be referred for an endoscopy. There have been recent challenges to this, particularly in children. Um, and to understand that a bit more, how we get a, a biopsy in children is different. They have to go undergo a general anesthesia to have their endoscopy done. There are more challenges in doing that. So there are guidelines in the paediatric practice that if your blood test is 10 times the upper limit of normal, you have the classical symptoms of celiac disease, and uh, by that we're talking about diarrhea, weight loss, alongside having the correct genetics, so have, fulfilling all those criteria, you could make a diagnosis of celiac disease without the need for a biopsy. Now, this approach has been tried and, and is in some places in the, in the country, in a, in a few centres, is being used as well. But to specifically specify that blood test needs to be 10 times the upper limit of normal. So people who have a positive result, if they don't fulfil that criteria, the guidelines remains and should be they should be referred to secondary care for consideration of a biopsy of the small intestine. Most people would still have a biopsy then, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Correct. Okay, great. Thank you. And say then you have your biopsy and it shows features of celiac disease and you go on a diet and you get better. Do you need to have a repeat biopsy or repeat blood tests? Again, debates and uh, variations in practice as to what happens. What many patients will tell us is that actually undergoing an endoscopy can be a challenging procedure. Many of them are not volunteering to have a, a second biopsy, but it can be a useful tool to help determine whether the gut is healing in response to elimination of gluten. So more frequently than having a biopsy is patients are monitored with regard to their symptoms and looking at the blood test as markers of uh, gut recovery, mucosal recovery from exclusion of gluten. So in practice across the UK at the moment, I would suggest that the vast majority of people are not having a rebiopsy, but there are centres who are doing it. And it's particularly done in those who are having persisting symptoms despite going on a gluten-free diet. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And any other pitfalls in diagnosis? We've covered a fair few pitfalls. We might have covered all of them. But is there any other ones that you would advise doctors to watch out for? Yeah, I think the importance based on the current guidelines is not to make a diagnosis in primary care based on a positive blood test. I would encourage uh, you know, that they're referred to specialists in, in secondary care for consideration and also to emphasize to patients not to adjust their diet. So just to emphasize those key bits. For me, the common pitfalls are just considering the diagnosis. As I've said already, we are missing three in every four people with celiac disease. Um, and that is because we may not appreciate the diverse presentations of celiac disease. As I described earlier, the classical symptoms of diarrhea and weight loss and possibly anemia. But what we understand now is that they're actually the less frequent presentations of celiac disease. People may present with just fatigue, tiredness, headaches, very non-specific symptoms you may describe. And unless the diagnosis of celiac disease is considered, particularly in primary care or in other specialist clinics, if you're subfertility being another high-risk group, then you may not get the diagnosis because you never considered. So the common pitfall there is not considering the diagnosis in the first place. 
Okay, thank you. That, that's that's really helpful. And just to be precise, what you mean, I think, is you're, you're saying people shouldn't go on a gluten-free diet until their diagnosis has been confirmed. Is that correct? Absolutely. To make a cast-iron diagnosis, it, you, know, you need you need a biopsy. Okay, great. Thank you. Let's move on to to management now. Tell us about recent advances in management. So, so I'd like to say, Kieran, there's been massive advances in in the world of CNCs with regards to management. So unfortunately, there's been no game changers. They're really the mainstay of treatment for CNCs is excluding gluten from the diet. And as I said, that's challenging in westernized diets because gluten is ubiquitous. It's in so many of the different foods that we eat. When you consider wheat, barley, and rye are, are the mainstay of a lot of the staples that we eat in our diet. There have been interesting work looking at non-dietary therapies drugs that may degrade gluten, uh, things that may influence the immune system, particularly T-cells, which are the main drivers of celiac disease. But again, we haven't got there yet. Um, there is promising work in progress and from a research side, but at the moment, the mainstay of management remains dietary therapy. What is also a, a challenge in management is also about follow-up of celiac disease. Although we've talked quite a bit about diagnosis, there appears and continues to be problems with follow-up of patients with celiac disease and it, it is recommending guidelines that patients are followed up in some capacity either through their general practice or in secondary care on an annual basis but unfortunately most patients report that they have an absence of some type of follow-up nothing significant to describe in advances i'm afraid of yet okay thank you that that's really helpful and um, what about oats? I remember a few years ago there being controversy whether you can eat oats or you can't eat oats. Well, what's the latest? Can people with celiac sure. disease eat oats? Okay, so um, oats contain a compound called avenin, which is a protein very similar to gluten. And actually what's changed now is that we recognize that most people with celiac disease can tolerate gluten-free oats. The challenge is that a lot of Production of oats happens in places where wheat, barley, and rye are also processed. So there can be contamination of those grains. And so people, when they consume oats that are not specifically gluten-free, they can give symptoms. So for the best part, it is recommend, you know, it is allowed that people can have oats who have CLTs, but there are concerns that the contamination may induce symptoms. So we just encourage people to make sure they have gluten-free oats, if at all possible. Okay, thank you. And what's the what's the food like? What's what's the taste like? So I, you know, having patients who describe, you know, and seen them on this journey, there, there have been significant advances with regards to gluten-free foods. I think historically there was limited availability. There were also concerns with regards to the cost associated with gluten-free foods. But there have, you know, you just need to go down a supermarket and the free four miles, and you'll see there's an array of different foods there. And often, you know, patients will gravitate to the things they like. There are things that, like all foods, that they will like and, and not like. But given that there's more choice and availability, I think for the best part, people are happy with the availability. And it is to be emphasised, as a lot of people, that there are a lot of natural gluten-free foods which do not need to be specifically gluten-free. There are a number available of foods that do not contain wheat, barley and rye. Okay, great. Thank you. What about failure to respond? You've got a patient you're sure of the diagnosis of celiac disease, they go on a diet, but they don't respond. What's what's going on? Again, a common occurrence that we see in our clinics that patients have had a diagnosis of celiac disease and uh, they don't respond. And, and from what we understand, that, that 
probably reflects 20 or 30 percent of patients with celiac disease and and usually the first line thing we will do is just to make sure the diagnosis of celiac disease is secure at the outset you know has it been made based on a blood test and a positive biopsy and there aren't interpretation issues with both which could influence that uh, cast iron diagnosis then we will explore other things and and the most common reason why they're not responding is that they are still consuming gluten either overtly or inadvertently it's simple things which may not be immediately appreciable but if you live in a house with someone who's not got celiac disease just sharing a toaster can contaminate the food you're eating and give you enough gluten load to induce the symptoms so to emphasize the commonest reason why people are having persisting symptoms is they are uh, still having gluten within their diet and that to be teased out often requires a skillful dietitian to work with the patient to try and see if that's the cause. If following that uh, review that we're happy that gluten is still not being consumed, then our next practice is to work through a series of investigations to look if there are other conditions which could be contributing to ongoing symptoms. We recognise that there are a number of conditions that are associated with celiac disease that can continue to give rise to symptoms. And once we've gone through excluding gluten consumption, we've excluded these other disorders, then in less than 1% of people see that disease, then we will consider the diagnosis of what is called refractory C disease, a very rare entity, but has a poorer prognosis than, than some of the other conditions. Okay, thank you. And, and what are the associated disorders? We recognize that people with C disease have an increased risk of small bowel bacterial overgrowth, pancreatic insufficiency, um, and a condition called microscopic colitis, which is a relatively recently uh, identified problem in that it's a type of inflammatory bowel disease like the classical ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But at endoscopy, the bowel appears normal, but there's inflammation at a microscopic level. And that seems to have an increased occurrence in people with celiac disease. So often, when people have persisting symptoms, as I highlighted earlier, we may consider taking a rebiopsy to see if there's healing of the top part of the digestive system, but may also consider a colonoscopy, an examination to look at the bottom part of the digestive system. Okay, great. Thank you. Very clear. Um, one of the recent dietary trends is for people to go on a gluten-free diet, people without celiac disease to go on a gluten-free diet. Does that make your job harder? Very much so. You know, one of the commonest diets that people are now adopting in society is a gluten-free diet. That creates its challenges, as I said, because the vast majority of people with celiac disease are not detected. And once you instigate a gluten-free diet, then establishing a diagnosis of celiac disease becomes more problematic. So what we would always encourage people to do is, is if they're having symptoms and associated with consuming gluten, and specifically wheat-based products, is to firmly establish the diagnosis through serological tests, first of all, and then, if positive, considering a biopsy. We will then have a conversation with that patient. They say, well, I feel much better. And what that would involve is something called a gluten challenge, where patients will consume gluten for a period of six weeks. And at that point, which we believe is sufficient time to develop a, an immune response where we can detect on your blood test, undergo blood testing and consideration of biopsy at that time. The, the challenge has been, as you rightly highlight, is that a lot of um, celebrities have adopted this gluten-free diet for perceived benefits. Whilst many of them probably don't have celiac disease, we are enhancing our understanding that there may be close relationships between irritable bowel syndrome and wheat sensitivity. There may be some overlap between these two conditions. 
But what is different is that is not an autoimmune disease where there is damage to the lining of the gut, which can lead to the complications which we discussed earlier. So for me, I wish to encourage you know, clinicians to consider the diagnosis of disease and make sure they exclude that to minimize the long-term complications. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, last question. Anything we've missed? Is there any other common problems or issues that you see uh, that we haven't covered? What we are understanding is that the spectrum of gluten disorders is increasing. So although we're here talking about celiac disease, which is a disorder of the gut, we recognize that it is becoming a multi-system problem. So we talk about dermatitis hepatiformis, the skin manifestation of uh, consuming gluten. We recognize a condition called gluten ataxia, um, which neurologists have increasing interest in where when people consume gluten, it causes neurological manifestations which can affect balance. So it is an evolving area. We're talking a lot about celiac disease, but the gut is essentially the entry point, but how it may present may not just be gut symptoms. It may present with different symptoms that may present to different specialties. So the key to this discussion is to emphasize the importance of considering the diagnosis and the diversity of its presentations. Okay, thank you very much. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other important diseases. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.